0: running. Absolute
1: genius. Get this. Welcome.
2: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. People. What that essentially means
3: is discovery, advances. advances. Question research.
1: Technology. Unbelievable.
4: Without further ado,
3: this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the program that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And coming up, a human receives one of Elon Musk's first brain implants. But why? And would you want one? Also, scientists unlock part of the puzzle of why fasting can cut inflammation and slow down the ageing process. And a brief history of spine. We explore a new exhibition on vertebrates. First this week, the billionaire funder of the company Neuralink Elon Musk has claimed that the first human has received an implant from the brain chip startup and is recovering well. The US Food and Drug Administration gave Neuralink permission to start testing its implants on humans last year. So how are these devices going to work? Well, I've been speaking to Andrew Jackson, who's a professor of neural interfaces at Newcastle University.
1: So they're trying to build a brain-computer interface, and a brain-computer interface is really a, a device that... Uh, senses electrical activity in the brain, right? The brain is an electrical organ. Um, our brain cells communicate by sending bits of electrical information between themselves. Um, and if we can place a, a device into the brain and eavesdrop on that electrical activity, then we can take those signals out and send them to computers or assistive devices that could be helpful for people who are paralysed.
3: How far along this path has science and technology and medicine already advanced?
1: Yeah, the idea of communicating directly between our brains and technology has been kind of around in science fiction for many years. The field really started accelerating around the turn of the millennium. And a study in the US... Started using electrode arrays in people for this brain computer interface idea. They started with fairly simple applications where people were controlling cursors moving around on a computer screen. Over the years, that's developed into controlling um, robotic arms. Uh, And now some of the latest demonstrations involve converting brain signals into speech and language. So people who are unable to speak can communicate using a, a voice synthesizer based on just decoding their thoughts from their brain. It's worth pointing out that the accuracy of this process, the performance of these brain computer interfaces still has some way to go to to match our natural ability to uh, move our hand or speak. The performance is slow. But as the algorithms for decoding brain activity improve, um, and as the technology for recording um, these electrical signals from more and more brain cells improves, there's significant promise that these devices could be useful for helping people who have um, disabilities.
3: And practically speaking, what's involved in doing this? When we're listening to the electrical activity of different bits of the nervous system, that is just spikes of electricity so how is that turned into something that means something to a computer and then ultimately into the action that you want to do
1: so that's a process called decoding and the easiest way to think about it it's a little bit like counting votes in an election so the first thing you have to do is to ask the user of the device to um, imagine making say two different movements a movement to the left and a movement to the right different brain cells will have preferred directions. So some brain cells will be much more active when, when I imagine a movement to the right, and some brain cells will be much more active when I make a movement to the left. And so by counting up the votes in a way that each brain cell is making for its preferred direction, you can infer that the population as a whole was involved in imagining a movement to the left or to the right. As you get more complicated, decoding movements in three dimensions or trying to decode language, this process obviously gets more difficult. And I think it's one of the main limitations at the moment of the field is that in order to use these devices, the user first has to go through this process of training the algorithm to recognize what patterns of brain activity are associated with the different instructions or ideas that the interface is is trying to decode. There's a sort of interesting question in here, which is, you know, how similar is your brain to my brain? When when you think of a cat, does the same kind of pattern of activity occur in your brain as in mine when I think of a cat? And I think these are going to be some of the kind of fundamental questions that the field is going to come up against is, is can we kind of extend this, this concept to decoding much more complicated ideas from, from brains or, or are we always going to be limited to these relatively simple applications where it's you know, moving a cursor around on a screen or something like that?
3: Everything we've discussed so far has been very much a one-way street, taking information out of the brain. Is there ultimate aspiration that we can put information in In some way or send signals back and what would be the application or the purpose of doing something like that?
1: Well we're already doing that to some extent with devices like cochlear implants used by some people who are deaf and their information about sound is being uh, electrically transmitted into the auditory nerve and, and sent to the brain and is perceived as sound. And you can think of perhaps doing something similar with um, with, with blindness, where we may be able to send um, information into uh, the retina or potentially the visual cortex in the brain um, that could be perceived by the brain as visual information. Certainly, these applications are starting to be explored. Um, there's also kind of potentially more interesting stuff in future we may be able to do by interfacing in sort of both directions with with circuitry within the brain that is supporting some of the more complex cognitive functions that our brain does. So people speculate as whether we could improve people's memory, say, by sensing signals from memory circuits, but also putting information into those memory circuits. I think the problem is that as we get towards those kind of applications, we know um, relatively less about how the brain is doing it already. And therefore, it becomes more difficult to see how using these kind of technologies um, any time soon will be able to improve these, these more cognitive functions.
3: Are you looking forward to being a cyborg one day?
1: I'm always kind of interested in, in these technologies. I think that what we'll really be seeing over the coming years and decades as these technologies become more sophisticated, is so we can really start to get at some of the really interesting scientific potentials of what we can do with a direct interface between the brain and technology. And so I'm hoping that the uh, applications will become more than just uh, moving cursors around on a computer screen. But I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to see how the field develops.
3: Andrew Jackson from the University of Newcastle. Now, most of us will have noticed that artificial lights at night seem to attract insects like bees around a honeypot, if that's the right analogy. But we didn't know why this happens, though, other than perhaps to speculate that the insects might be mistaking street lights for the sun and trying to navigate by them. But now, with the help of some extremely fast photography, Sam Fabian, who's at Imperial College London, thinks he's got to the bottom of it.
5: So the question that was really interesting us is... Why, when you put a light out at night, do you get insects showing up? And it's something that I think pretty much every human being on Earth has seen. And the trouble was that a lot of the explanations and a lot of the kind of discussion around it just didn't seem to match our understanding of how insects operate. And they just didn't seem quite satisfying. So we thought, well, what's the data? And it actually turns out there wasn't that much data about the way in which insects were flying around lights at night.
3: And you're right about the sort of ubiquity of this, because I think I've, I've certainly read references back in, I think, Greek mythology, where people are referring to insects being drawn like a moth to a flame. What people speculated might be going on?
5: There are quite a few theories. So a few of them were things like insects are inherently attracted to heat. We actually now know that's not really true, or at least that's not the effect that's causing this. Because you can stick an LED light out that chucks out a far less thermal radiation, and yet you still get lots and lots of insects showing up. So there are other theories that it was something to do with trying to escape to where they saw bright spots because they thought it was like looking through a, the trees at a patch of light and they were heading for that. But actually when we look at the trajectories that insects do, they don't tend to fly around in direct lines straight towards the light. In fact, they seem these kind of weird securities roundabout paths that lead them in towards the light.
3: How did you test it then? Did you set up a bonfire or <laughs> bright lights? <laughs> what was the experimental setup and how did you actually see in an objective way, what the insects are really doing.
5: The way that we we approach just that first question is, is it this compass cue which we eventually ruled out? And one way in which we approached this was that if you're using something as a sort of landmark reference and you're keeping it at a a certain region, you should want it to either be on the right or the left of your body, most likely. Well, if we turn that light off and we turn a new light on at exactly the same time, you should, after a little bit of confusion in the middle, start circling this other light in the same direction, because you should always want the light to stay on your left. But actually, when I sat there and toggling these lights, we found that they would actually change which direction they were circling around the light. They'd change having the light on their left or ch- having the light on their right. And they didn't seem to care which side it was on, which really argues against this kind of compass cue. And the lights in this instance were UV LED bulbs, and we would hang these around and we could see the way in which the insects would fly around it and then we would record these with high-speed cameras. So these are things that are able to take pictures at 500 to 1,000 frames per second.
3: And when you did that, did anything emerge from these pictures that enabled you to explain why the insects appear to have a bad sense of direction that they, they flip when you flick the lights on and off? What are they actually doing? They're clearly not worried about right and left, or they would have done exactly as you suggested and circled in one direction. So what are they doing?
5: I think it really clicked when I had this beautiful large yellow underwing moth. And it sat on my hand and I got it to take off. We had this UV light that was shining upwards. What happens is the, the moth would cruise over the UV light and as soon as it was over and above that UV bulb, it flipped itself upside down and dropped out of the air. That is not matched by any explanation or any theory that we currently have. And actually, we know about a behavioural response where animals tilt their backs towards light, because they think light is the direction of up, because they think that's the sky. The sky is, and has been for 370 million years while insects have been flying around, that's been the brightest region that they can see. So if you just assume the bright region is the sky and therefore up, you can very quickly work out which way is up. And so using where is bright to work out which way is up, is a really robust, it's a simple, beautiful way to solve this problem. And it's a really great way to do it until somebody invents streetlights, at which point it's suddenly not such a good idea.
3: So putting all this together, then, you would argue that what is happening when that moth or that insect goes to the streetlight at night, is that they see this as a light source, that they then think that that is the sky... And they then continuously orientate themselves so that their back is towards the light. But why does that make them go around in a circle? So if
5: they're constantly tilting their back towards the light, well, on average, they should think that gravity or gravitational acceleration should be pulling them in the other direction. And so if they're tilting their backs over, it's a bit like if you had a a helicopter or a plane and you're just tilting over. All of a sudden those forces are asymmetrical. And that leads to the animal drifting around, and that drift is dependent on where it is relative to light. But what happens is they kind of get locked in these, these very circular orbits, especially if there's very little wind, and you have a very stable flyer, something like a dragonfly. You can get really, really tight, beautiful circles of about you know, 60 centimeters in diameter if they fly around. That's because the body is rolled over to one side as they're flying. It's creating asymmetry in which way the flight forces are going, causing them to constantly turn. As they turn, the light moves relative to them and they keep adjusting for that and they just get stuck in this pile.
3: So is there anything you can do to help me with the blue bottle in my bedroom that won't stop when I want to go to bed at night? Is there anything I can do to lure it away better?
5: Certainly we can think about ways in which we can lure this away better. And what seems to be important is that wavelength is is super key. So wavelength is really just the colour of the light and that's important because we find that things like UV... Are very, very important, and they work on lots and lots of different insects. But we also about to think about this in the the other way. How do we have lights at night that don't influence insects? Because for those of us that love bugs, and those of us that don't, we should care about them, and we should want to not influence their behavior. And so this tells us that actually the direction in which we're putting out lights is really important, and that we shouldn't have lights that are just shining up into the atmosphere or shining out sideways. If we want to try and restrict our effects on insects at night
3: sam fabian shedding some light on an observation that goes back as it turns out thousands of years the
1: naked scientists podcast is produced in association with spitfire cost-effective voice internet and ip engineering services for uk businesses find out how spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk music in the program
4: is sponsored by epidemic sound Perfect music for audio and video productions.
3: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, why fasting might make you live longer. Before that, though, a fascinating exhibition by the University of Cambridge's Museum of Zoology is just open to the public. It's called Growing a Backbone, Rise of the Vertebrates, and our very own Will Tingle has been along for a spine-tingling preview.
2: My gym teacher always told me to grow a spine, so today I'm taking his advice and heading down to Cambridge University's Zoology Museum to meet the man who can tell me all about the virtues of growing a backbone.
0: I'm Jason Head. I am the curator of vertebrate paleontology in the University Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge, and I'm the professor of vertebrate
2: evolution and ecology in the Department of Zoology at Cambridge. Do we know roughly when the first vertebrate may have come about and what it might have looked like.
0: So the oldest fossil vertebrates uh, tell us that the the group originates at least by what we would call the early to middle Cambrian. Um, And this is going to be somewhere around 520, 530
2: million years ago. Why a backbone though? What about it? is so beneficial to those that have one that have allowed such a wide variety of species to evolve.
0: The backbone or the spine or the vertebral column is a really important structure in vertebrate evolution. And when we evolve this multi-segmented series of bones that connect together and can bend and twist We evolve massive body sizes, we can climb, we can swim, we can crawl, we can support ribs, we can support our organs with them. So the vertebral column, the spine, is what we like to call the central axis of the vertebrate body, but it's also the central axis of vertebrate evolution.
2: As we're looking out here across all these organisms, across a great span of time as well, one thing that strikes me is the fact that you've had to study vertebrates by purely looking at fossil records, and the fossil record would imply then, if I looked at it, that the spine was just a series of bones. How do you make such assumptions based on just the fossil records that you have? So
0: the nice thing about bones is that their shapes, their, their anatomies, their features, give us clues about the soft tissues that they're integrated with, that they connect to, so we can know things about the spinal cord by looking at the passages in the bone that the spinal cord passes through. We can tell about the muscles that connect the various bones of the backbone by the, the attachment sites on the various vertebrae. And we do use the fossil record. it's invaluable and it's a necessary component to understanding vertebrate evolution, but we can also look at how the embryological development in living vertebrates occurs and how we can see how the, everything from the genetics that control how vertebrae are patterned to the various ways in which the animals grow and the rate and the speed and how many vertebrae they develop all of this integrates with the fossil record and then the. More morphology or the anatomy of living vertebrates to give us a complete picture of how we become this dominant group in terms of ecology and diversity and body size today are there any particular highlights any favorites that you'd love to walk me through sure so uh, we can start over here if you want So this is the skeleton of about a three and a half meter long Burmese python. It's one of the largest snake species in the world. And what we've done is we've laid this specimen out so that it's in a straight line and we have the the spine running straight behind the skull and then the ribs are laid out on either side of this specimen. And what we wanted to do is show kind of how the spine changes along the body of a snake and how the ribs change, but also to really accentuate how many individual bones make up the spine of a snake, which is hundreds. And that's a really interesting feature of these animals, and we know that evolutionary changes in how they develop as embryos are what led to this increase in the number of bones in the spine. Many snakes do actually keep hind legs. They actually have a femur, a thigh bone, and based on work by one of our postgraduate students here in the museum, we've discovered that some snakes actually have the shin bones, the tibia, and the fibula still. The interesting thing about the hind legs in snakes is that those snakes that retain them actually use them in mating. So a male snake will crawl up next to a female snake, and the thigh bone still sticks out of the body. It has a little keratinous covering, keratin being the stuff that our fingernails are made out of, and these little legs are really powerful, and so they can vibrate them really quickly against the side of the female's body, and that
2: indicates that the male is ready to mate. And they say romance is dead. This final one. I think I recognize this, but I'm going to be very embarrassed if I get this wrong. This looks awfully like... skull of my own.
0: Yeah so this is a human skull and we have it in a case with the skull of a crocodile and we have it with some birds and sheep and a snake Um, and these skulls are actually built and arranged on a particular type of armature where the skulls are what we call exploded so all the bones are close to each other and sort of in position but they're all on separate rods so you can see how they fit together and this was actually a Victorian teaching tool And what we've done is we've used these specimens to illustrate a point about the evolution of special features of vertebrates, specifically how vertebrates evolve a face. And if you grab the top of your head with one hand and grab your face with the other hand, um, you're going to be holding two different types of tissue, two different types of bone, that actually don't have exactly the same evolutionary history. Our face is composed of bone that is derived from a special cell type called neural crest. And neural crest is a unique feature of vertebrates. It forms parts of the connective tissues of our sensory systems that could link them to the brain. But it also forms the bones of our face and the bones of our collarbones. So all your, the senses in your face and their supports in the, the bones of the skull are all derived from this unique feature called neural crest. And so what we've done is by having these exploded skulls, we've not only been able to use a Victorian teaching tool, we've been able to use it to show a new discovery and development that is really kind of a 20th, mid-20th century innovation.
2: Thank you so much for showing me around. This is absolutely fascinating. And we, I feel like we only touched the surface of what's available at this exhibit. We have talked about, you know, backbones and we've talked about jaws. But what else is there for people to enjoy if they come along?
0: One of the exhibits we also have is an exhibit that talks about the origin of vertebrates moving from water to land. And this was pioneering work done by my predecessor in the museum, Professor Jenny Clack. Anyone who wants to come to the museum and discover how we went from fishes in the water to tetrapods on land and how we went from fins to limbs can come on up and see those specimens and you can hear about that research.
2: I will be there. Day one, first in the queue. Fantastic.
3: we Will Tingle at the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. Growing a backbone, the rise of the vertebrates runs until the 15th of September 2024 and admission to the exhibition and the museum is free. So if you're in the environs, do drop in. Now we learned this week that the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak undertakes a fast at the start of every single week when he consumes only water, tea or black coffee starting at 5pm on a Sunday through until 5am on Tuesday. But could this enforce 36 hours of what most of us would regard as hell have health benefits? Cambridge University immunologist Claire Bryant has published a paper this week that suggests Rishi Sunak might be onto something Fasting, she's found, drives down levels of inflammation in the body by pushing up the concentration of a chemical called arachidonic acid. This, she's found, blocks an inflammatory pathway that can be linked to a whole host of diseases and an accelerated ageing process. Aspirin, interestingly, also targets it, which might be one of the ways that the painkiller exerts some of its therapeutic effects
4: we were really interested in the beneficial effects of fasting. People that overeat or have the Western diet, the high-fat diet, led to an increase in the activity of an inflammatory complex called the inflammasome. We were kind of interested because fasting people seem to have the reverse.
3: Indeed, because people who calorie restrict are said to live longer, aren't they?
4: Yeah, they are, and they they seem to have all sorts of other health benefits as well. And it's completely the reverse of people who are on a high-fat Western diet. So... Why? That was the question. What does it mean and how does it work? How did you pursue it? So two things. There was a happy coincidence, actually. So we had started to do some work in the lab and we were looking at, in our models, what sort of lipids were being produced. And there was a particular profile of lipids which were totally unexpected. And one of them, a lipid called arachidonic acid, which normally I would associate with an inflammatory state, was actually elevated.
3: That is weird because that's the starting material for making a whole load of inflammatory chemicals in the body. So it seems paradoxical that in people with a low levels of inflammation they should have high levels of the starting material. Is that just because they're not using it to make the inflammatory materials?
4: That was what we thought. And that was certainly what the data we were seeing in our in vitro models were suggesting.
3: Putting this together then, so we calorie restrict... By some mechanism, this puts up the level of arachidonic acid, which turns down this inflammasome, the inflammatory complex that we know maps onto being less healthy. How does the calorie restriction push up the arachidonic acid so that you end up with less inflammation? What's going on?
4: Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question. And in fact, what's also interesting, I've been thinking about this a lot, is how long do you need to fast fast? What fasting regime do you need to undertake? How many days a week? One day a week? Do Richie Sunak's 36 hours? Is that the ideal way or is it short, long? There's a whole bunch of questions here that we, we now need to further investigate. And because we can find the arachidonic acid, obviously we can track this over time. We can map this against the inflammatory markers and see exactly what happens. But the honest answer is this is the fir- one of the first steps in the puzzle to understand this, this direct switch between arachidonic acid and inflammasome activity.
3: The other thing that's interesting with this is if people take aspirin for things like heart disease they also get benefits in other things like cancers, Alzheimer's disease, other degenerative states and people have said this is because it stops the inflammation. What does aspirin do to arachidonic acid?
4: So aspirin inhibits the breakdown of arachidonic acid and so one of the things we think as well that this work has shown is that there's yet another way in which drugs like aspirin are anti-inflammatory because the arachidonic acid is not broken down this can then feed back to inhibit the inflammasome activity and that will then decrease your inflammation so aspirin is a is a is a many functional drug and the longer we do the research the more effects and mechanisms we find of these sort of drugs
3: food for thought isn't it that was cambridge university's claire bryant and the study was published in cell reports Well, now it's over to Question of the Week, and we're back with Will Tingle, who's been grappling with this linguistic corker sent in by listener Satya. Why do languages evolve completely differently between countries,
2: even when they directly border each other? Why do they have such different dialects? Good question, Satya. And to answer it, we've enlisted the help of author and British linguist David Crystal.
6: Languages are different because people are different. As soon as one group of people move away from another or or separated from another by a barrier, like a mountain range or a river, then in a short time they'll begin to speak in a different way. They'll have new words to reflect their new surroundings. Their accent will change. It doesn't take long. When people from England moved to America in the 17th century, within a few decades British visitors were remarking on an American twang, and all the new words to do with the American Indians or local wildlife. You know, words like wigwam and moccasin and skunk. Over time, these differences increase, and eventually they're so noticeable that we call them different dialects. But at least with dialects, the people understand each other. Over hundreds and maybe thousands of years, the differences become so great but the speakers no longer understand each other, and then we call them different languages. It's all a matter of identity. A community can show its identity in all kinds of ways, such as how they dress, but speech is the easiest way to show that you belong to a particular community. And today there are over 6,000 languages in the world, and within that 6,000 there are an, <laughs> an uncountable number of dialects, Remember, each community is proud of its language or dialect. And we should all be proud of this diversity. Each language is a unique vision of the world and of what it means to be human. The bad news is that there's a language disappearing in the world every three months or so. The good news is that organisations like the Foundation for Endangered Languages in the UK are trying to do something about it.
2: There you have it. Thank you very much to Satya for the question and to David Crystal for the answer. Next week, we're answering this question sent in from listener Ian. He asks, Has anyone ever wondered when or why humans started needing sex education? Were we just copying until cities were created and we lived in isolated rooms? How did we survive through the transition from instinct to learning? An excellent question. And if you have a question or think you know the answer to this one, do drop us a line at 5 at bbc.co.uk.
3: Thanks to Will Tingle there. And that's all we have time for this week, but do drop in on Tuesday when we're going to be looking at the arguments both for and against legalising assisted dying here in the UK. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, until next time, goodbye.